Well, our key passage uh, for the book of Hebrews, again, I'm hoping we'll sort of have this somewhat committed to memory time we finish. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Now, again, I'm, I made this point last week, and I'm going to make it again as we continue working through this. Pay attention to the fact those plural pronouns, us and we. The apostle here, we think the apostle Paul, but we're not for sure. You know, it's an interesting point of the book of Hebrews. But the author here writes, including himself as all of us. You know, we're in this together, right? As Christians, we're striving for the purpose of serving our Lord, and we do it together. Let us hold fast. He didn't say, you better hold fast. Um, he's reminding us that he's in this equation too, as we all are. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Let's be stable and secure. For he is faithful that is promised. That's Christ himself is faithful. And let us consider one another to encourage or provoke into love and good works. We're going to see a little bit of that in chapter 6. And then not forsaking the assembling of ourselves. Congratulations, you're here, right? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, um, but exhorting or again encouraging one another. And so much more as you see the day or the day of the Lord approaching. And so uh, it's a great uh, key passage for this entire study. And hopefully Hebrews will encourage us. Hopefully Hebrews will remind us of great truths so that our faith has a stable foundation. And you know, the, the, the reality is we need that stable foundation. Life throws all types of things at us. You know, we still battle the flesh and the world and Satan. And, and they're always seeking to knock us off kilter, to get our ship rocking when the Lord says, stand fast, be faithful, so that we do not waver in the faith. And uh, so uh, hopefully Hebrews will do that for us. We're working our way through this study, basically chapter by chapter, um, at least one full chapter. And tonight we're going to cover the end of chapter 5 and work our way through chapter 6, as we're going to do in four sections. So just a reminder, Hebrews is written from a Jewish author to a Jewish audience. And that Jewish audience is living in a time of persecution. They're being persecuted by the Jewish authorities, by local authorities. Roman persecution has really not kicked in yet. Historically, we can say that very, very, uh, uh, very truthfully, because we know historically the Jewish persecution of Christians will not happen until the latter part of the first century leading into the second century. So persecution that they're exhibiting is mainly on a local level. It began in Jerusalem as Jews there turning to Christ were being persecuted by the high priest and the authorities of Jerusalem. So what did many of them do? They escaped. Remember, it was in Jerusalem at the hands of Jews that a Jewish believer in Jesus named Stephen was stoned to death. And so it wasn't beyond their capacity just to say, execute them. They're blasphemers. And so they left Jerusalem in fear of their life, no doubt. And many of them not only left Jerusalem, they left Israel proper altogether and found their way to Syria in the north. And in Syria, they clustered in two primary cities, Antioch and Damascus. And it's in those cities that the next phase of God's gospel ministry program for evangelization would begin. There in Antioch particularly, there would be a place where many, as where the Apostle Paul begins his missionary journeys. And then from Antioch would launch many Christians out into the world of their time and of their place um, to help teach and preach and spread the gospel. And so we understand that the author writes to these Jews who are in a period of persecution. And that's difficult for us to understand. We, we understand the concept, but we've not lived there. Um, and it's a reminder that indeed today around the world, there are multitudes of Christians living in such persecution themselves. That to be found out to be a Christian is to put your life at risk and the life of your family and your future at risk. And so these words are appropriate, not just because we're speaking historically, because we're trying to speak present day also. What do we glean from Hebrews in this setting? What truths can we anchor our faith to to help us better understand what God is doing? So in chapter 5, as has been true in the preceding chapters, there's been a comparison of why Jesus, by the way of Christ, is a better way, a superior way than the way of the Jewish faith. 
which was built upon sacrifice and the, and the uh, offerings that had to be made at the temple. And it was built upon the feast days and all the things that the law required for someone who was following after God to do. Christ now has opened up a new way. The new covenant is a covenant built upon, yes, faith, as the Old Testament has its element of faith, but now faith in a risen Savior. And that faith in a risen Savior leads Christ's followers then to have a new perspective to life and how it is you pursue your faith and how do you live out your faith. And so all these comparisons are made. And Hebrews is a book that's going to force you to go back to the Old Testament to look at some of the things there. Because again, as Gentiles, and I think even maybe more so as 21st century Gentiles, we don't typically have that perspective of what the Old Testament is focused on. Whereas the author and his readers would have known great detail that is sometimes written between the lines. So I've tried to make that point. And a few times we've looked back, and I'm sure we'll do it more before we're finished. I make a couple of references tonight here we have to talk about to the Old Testament. And understanding the Old Testament is a great foundation for fully seeing what the New Testament explains to us. So in chapter 5, there's a discussion about the high priest. And we also, we also were introduced to this priest of the book of Genesis named Melchizedek. And we're not done with him yet. We're going to come back to him. We're going to start with him just briefly. And then we're going to come back to him the next time we meet with even more detail in chapter 7. So that's an Old Testament reference that we're not done with yet either. It's one the author spends a little bit of time on. And so after talking about the great high priest um, uh, described to us, especially um, uh, verse 9 of chapter 5, maybe we can take half a step back to there. We looked at last week as we finished. And being made perfect, this great high priest, the Son of God, and being made perfect, uh, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him that follow him, that, that, are in, that put their faith and trust in him. Who is this one? Verse 10, called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So there's where we finished last week. So we're, we're reminded of this reference of Melchizedek. And again, I won't chase that rabbit trail right now. Let's come back to it in chapter 7. And so verse 11, where we want to start tonight, it seems as if the author here sort of takes a sidebar, side note, he wants to say something to his readers that they need to hear before he moves on to the next description of Melchizedek. He has sown the idea of Christ, who is our great high priest, the one who is priest and king, as Melchizedek was, and he is the perfect example of that, and he is the one who we need to understand better through this Old Testament comparison. But he says, hold on to that thought for a minute and let me talk about this. And that's kind of what verse 11 does for us. Verse 11 introduces our train of thought now to a new direction. It's kind of a side note because he's going to talk about those who are, I'm going to use my term, lazy, right? Look at the words that are used in verse 11 as, uh, here as it's described. Of whom, the whom there does not refer to Melchizedek. It re refers to our great author of eternal salvation, referred to in uh, verse 9, Christ himself, of course, of whom we have many things to say. We have a lot more to say about how great Christ is, right? How superior he is to everything in the Old Testament. They were but foreshadows of who he is. They were the, they were the symbol. He's the reality. I have, the, the writer says, there is many more things to say. And some of these things are hard to be uttered. These are things that, meaning they are challenging to be understood unless you really know what you're talking about. So he's going to remind them here that they are, look at the last part of verse 11, the phrase that's used here, seeing ye are dull of hearing. Do you understand what that means? They just don't really comprehend, they're not ready to comprehend all of it yet. It's as if I, uh, one commentator, I like the way he described it. He said, the author of Hebrews is trying to explain algebra to a bunch of people who are still doing first grade math. I thought that's a pretty good comparison. They're doing something, but they're still, they're still in the shallow end of the pool. And the author of Hebrews says, it's time, men and women, we get in the deep end of the pool, but you're not ready to swim yet. 
you're still dog paddling in the shallow end. That's kind of the idea of dull of hearing. You're just not, you should be, but you're not ready to hear this yet. Look at verse 12. We, we can say that because of verse 12. For when, for when, for the time, ye ought to be teachers. You ought to, owe en- you ought, you ought to know enough that you're influencing, you're teaching, you're instructing others. But ye have need that one teach you again. Which, be, which are the first principles, or which be the first principles, of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk. You're like little babes, right? And that comparison is used in other places of Scripture. Paul, Paul himself uses that comparison. That's one of those comparison points we say while well, Paul was the author, where he talks about the meat and the milk, and he's going to make that reference here. You have become as those who have need of milk, and not a strong meat. You're still kind of shallow in your thinking. You've been a Christ follower how long, and you still don't understand this? I mean, it's kind of the implied question here. It's a reminder to all of us that our faith should be growing. There is a time to know the elemental things of the faith. When you first come to faith in Christ, regardless of how old you are, when you first come to faith in Christ, you need to know those elemental things because they build to the next layer and to the next layer and to the next layer. And eventually... You're at a place where you should be mature enough that you're helping to influence and teach and instruct others. I think of, I think of what our pastor told this morning, and uh, he's, he's a friend of mine. I don't think you'll be insulted by this because Pastor Paul mentioned him. Uh, Vince uh, Burroughs. Pastor Paul mentioned Vince Burroughs. Come into faith in Christ there in the office. And you know, Vince today is upstairs teaching a class. I think he's a good example of the intent the writer has here to say, you know, there should be a progress in your faith. That doesn't mean we're all going to be Bible study teachers. Not, not at all. But it means we should be mature enough in our faith that we can help influence and teach and instruct others. And I would say that, that, that uh, claim is cast first to those who are our children and grandchildren. That we're just teaching them the basics and the elemental things, Right? Uh, was stopped by the nursery this morning. What was a real treat in there to see, to see a teacher in there singing Jesus. Uh, 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 oh, man. Brain dead. My brain's been through too, too many things today. Uh, Jesus loves me, this I know. Teaching with those children, right? Isn't that the place for that? Now, y'all may think it a little, a, a little odd if I said, let's sing Jesus loves the little children. Jesus loves me, this I know, Right? Um, I've got a sermon on that, though, so hold on to that thought. Don't, don't, don't uh, be bad when I come preach a sermon on Jesus loves me. But I'm, you see the idea? The Apostle Paul is saying there's a time for milk, but you can't live the rest of your life on milk. There's something cute about a one-year-old in a bottle. There's something scary about a 51-year-old in a bottle. Okay? So that's the idea. We should be maturing in our faith. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat, those things that can be hard to digest, belong to them that are of full age. Full maturity is the, the word there. Even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. They just have discernment from the scripture and their learning. The reality is some people are content to be babes in Christ. And they, you know, they show up to church every once in a while, and they come, and they get special topics or other things, but they, they really don't have much of a desire to grow. And yet you ask them, oh, yeah, I was saved when I was nine years old. How old are you now? How mature should you be now? What are you doing? Where, where is your, I like to use this analogy, where is your handprint in the ministry of this church? There should be a place where your hand is obvious and evident in the service and the ministry of the gospel. And so that's the, that's the reminder here. And the word that's used there, dull of hearing, can be interpreted with the word I use, lazy. Those who just see no sense in moving forward. Um, and so he, sidened, he sidebars this discussion about Melchizedek to say to them, there are some things you need to be reminded of. Now to help prove his point is chapter 6. Chapter 6 is intended to prove his point. And he does it by using a negative comparison. In other words, and we've seen him do this before in uh, chapter 3, where he says, don't be like this group. Don't be like this group. Whatever else you do, don't be like that group, right? And so there's where chapter 6 kicks in. Chapter 6 
if you just read the first few verses, if you read these first um, uh, eight verses and you read them out of context, you just pulled those verses out and read them, they would sound confusing and they might even sound unbiblical. So let's read it just to make that point. Without, I'll try not to make any comments. Therefore, right? Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptism and of the laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of the eternal judgments. Well, there's lots of things to discuss, right? And this will we do if God permit. In other words, he says, I got a lot of things to talk about. Hang on, we'll get to them. Verse 4, for it is impossible for those who are the, who, think of who the those are here. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tested the good words of God and the powers of this world to come. Do you have a name for these people? What would you call them? I think I'd call them saved. Right? Look at that description again. I said I wouldn't make comments. I'll pause right here just to do that. These are people who, who were enlightened. The light has been shown to them is really what that word means. They have tasted of the heavenly gift. They were made partakers of the Holy Spirit. They tasted the good words of God and the powers, the authorities of the world to come. The prophecy is what's implied there. Well, there's a group you'd say, yeah, they're Christians. Verse 6, if, if they shall fall away to renew them again into repentance, seeing they crucify themselves the Son of God afresh and put, to them, and put him to open shame, for the earth which drinks in the rain that comes oft upon it, or often upon it, and brings forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receives blessing from God, but that they which hear thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh to cursing whose end is to be burned. If we were to look at those, those eight verses, some people would want to say, is it possible they've lost their salvation? Is it possible they have been born again and somehow lost it? One commentator said, of these eight verses, these are the most confusing eight verses in all the New Testament. And he even cited the fact that there he could find 16 different interpretations of these eight verses. The Bible scholars are all over the board as to how this should be. Is it allegory? Is it hyperbole? It's trying to make a point by excess that really is not a big deal. Is it somehow teaching you could lose your salvation? You know, there are Christians who believe that. And there are even some Baptists who believe that, that you could lose your salvation. Is it teaching that maybe they weren't saved? Some, some would say, well, these people really weren't saved. Maybe they tasted. You see that word in there? They tasted, but they didn't swallow, right? Maybe they got a glimpse, but they didn't look. Maybe they, they saw the work of the Holy Spirit, but they never received it. Well, you really have to twist and turn those words a lot to make any of those applications fit those verses. So what does it apply to? It's, a, it's, it's an applying, again, of a principle that we saw in previous chapters. So I've got to bring it back up here. It's applying the principle because we're going to see it exposed to us even within these verses. It's a principle following up to the idea that we're, we're not, the Hebrews is not written to get the lost man saved. Hebrews is not an evangelical book. It's not written to get the lost man saved. What is it written to do? It's written to get the saved man matured, the saved person. Maturing in your faith. That's why he makes such a big deal at the end of chapter 5. Why are you not maturing in your faith? You should be. How long have you been a Christian now? You should be maturing your faith, but you're not. So just in the greater context of Hebrews, we know this is not about those who are lost becoming saved. And even more importantly, it's not about those who are saved becoming lost. If you want to take that direction on this one eight-verse passage, then allow me to put in the scales of interpretation all the verses that say you can't lose your salvation. 
I did nothing to save myself. I can do nothing to keep myself saved, right? The reality of salvation is a, it's eternal life, not temporary life. It's not a gift from given from God until you mess up bad enough and then it's taken away. And so I, if, if you want to take that path, we can have that discussion, but you're going to be far, far outweighed by all the verses that say you have your eternal, your, uh, your, your new life is eternal. So what does this apply to? It applies to a principle that was brought up in a previous chapter discussion of losing your inheritance. Losing your inheritance. What does that mean? I'm saved. I've been born again. I have indeed tasted of the good words of God. I've been a partaker of the Holy Spirit. Those things are all true. But because of my immaturity, and because of my I really don't care what God thinks attitude, what happens? That type of person loses part of the joy of their faith. They lose their, their, um, their drive and their motivation to serve the Lord. We won't turn there, but it's a familiar passage to you in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I would suspect, where it talks about what shall we do with our life at the judgment seat? Where we offer wood, hay, and stubble. Familiar passage to you now? You offer wood, hay, and stubble or gold, silver, and precious stones. At the judgment seat of Christ, when we offer wood, hay, and stubble, what's the common reality to those elements? They're all destroyed by the judgment fire of God. They weren't worth anything. But if we, if we invest our lives in such a way that it produces gold, silver, and precious stones, those things are purified by the judgment fire. And what does that passage affirm to us? Though he himself be saved or delivered, his works will show his evident outcome. There's an inheritance there. There is a pursuit that we are after as Christians in pursuing to do what God would have us to do that our lives might produce, gold, silver, and precious stones. And so the application here is of those who are on that path toward wood, hay, and stubble. If you're on that immature path and you're not seeking for the glory of God, you're looking for the, you're looking for the glory of self, then you're pursuing a path that will end up with no inheritance, no reward. And you shall find in your faith a shallowness that you're content with. Hey, I'm in the pool. What else am I need to worry about? But there's a shallowness to that pool if you're not careful. And maturity and growth should be happening as a natural process of your spiritual life. And so in the, in the work of what happens with our spiritual faith here, the challenge is to realize this is not about those who are losing their salvation. No, it's about those, and look at the phrase that are used. Let's pick verse 6. Fall away. If they fall away in their, in their intent, if they, take, if they take the path of saying, I really don't care about my church life, I'd rather go do this a lot more fun. I don't need to read the Bible. I don't need to pray. I don't need to put my hand to the ministry of the gospel. I'm, after all, I'm saved. Isn't that enough? Well, if they shall fall away, what shall happen to them? Shall Christ be crucified again by them? The obvious answer there is no. For they shall find that what they have done shall be lost. And you, you get to that in verse 8. But that which bears thorns and briars is rejected. That's the kind of life they're living. It's, it's bearing thorns and briars. There's nothing of value to that. What do you do with that? It's nigh to cursing. Aren't those things frustrating? I ran into a thorn bush yesterday. Thankfully, I didn't curse. What do you want to do with them, though, it says? The end of it is to be burned. It's the same idea of what is taught in the other passage about our lives pursuing wood, hay, and silver, or gold, silver, and precious stones. There's another kind of between the lines. You don't see this as obvious, but it echoes because we've come across it before. And we mentioned it even last week, I think. The idea that the comparison is those Old Testament Hebrews there at Kadesh Barnea, and this is in Numbers chapter 14. Go read that passage. Numbers chapter 14, where they are saying, we don't want to go to the promised land, Moses. We're sorry we came this far. 
We have heard about these spies that went to the land for 40 days. We've heard what they've told us. And we're ready to find another map, another way than going to the promised land. That has already been discussed in previous chapters of Hebrews. And that can be a good comparison here too. It's a good application to this. Because what did they do? They made a decision. They made a choice. And, and we're going to see this play out in some of the rest of the verses of this chapter. They made a choice that we will not follow God's way. Remember, if you go back and read that chapter, they said things like, would to God that we had died in Egypt than suffer through this. Oh, you've just, Moses, you've brought us here just to send us to our death. And that whole mindset caused the entire assembly of Hebrews that Moses had led to wander in the wilderness of Sinai for near those 40 years. And in that process, that generation did die off. Only Joshua and Caleb and all those who were under 20 years old would go into the promised land in 40 years. What happened to them? Same illustration. They lost their inheritance. They never got to set their feet in the promised land and see God blessing there. They, were, they, had, they had doomed themselves by their own decision not to follow God's way, not to exercise their faith. And so that's the whole issue of verses 1 through 8, the lame. But notice I put in parentheses, not the lost. This is not about the lost. It's not about the lost becoming saved, and certainly not about the saved becoming lost. It's about those who are saved who are not pursuing God's desire for their life and the principles that we glean from God's word and the truths that are brought before us. And then verse 9 turns with that first word, but, right? But. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. Okay? When you read that, you need to hear your parents sometime in your life going, I expect better things out of you. Right? Because we were all probably there one time or another. That's exactly what is being implied here. The writer is saying, beloved, we, are all, we all know you can do better. We are persuaded of better things of you. And things that accompany salvation, there should be some evident and obvious outpouring of your salvation. You call yourself a Christian and you still talk like that? You call yourself a Christian and still have that attitude? I mean, it's exactly what you can read between the lines here. We expect better things of you. And things that should be obvious as they accompany your salvation. Though we thus speak. So listen up. Are you listening? Right? That's kind of what he's saying. God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. God knows what you're doing. God knows the intent of your heart. God knows what you have done. And here's something even more important for us to keep in mind. God knows what you're capable of doing. Right? God knows what you're capable of doing. Which ye have shown toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints. And do minister. There are some things you're doing. But don't be content there. And we desire that every one of you, that's an important little four word there, every one of you. He didn't say we desire that most of you, or we think some of you, right? And instantly, what do we get? We get an out. Well, he's talking about everybody else, but not me. No, he says, every one of you, we want, our desire is that every one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope to the end, until the end, the end of your life to the end of your ministry, he's saying basically be faithful. God has called you to serve and to minister. Then stay on that path. Don't get distracted. Don't let other things detour you from the direction God wants. Be diligent. It's a good word that's used in verse 11. I've noticed this week, it's caught my attention several times. Uh, a little bit of a side note here while I'm thinking about it. Uh, our school that meets here three days a week, Harvest Academy and their kids, the word of the week this past week was fortitude. They have it on their board, I noticed it out there. Have, and I've now seen it a few more than once this week. Fortitude. And they had a definition for the kids. Basically it said, it's, it's continuing on with, even when things get hard and difficult. That's fortitude. That's exactly the word that's implied here with diligence. Sometimes you've got to show some diligence and fortitude, don't you? Keep pushing forward. 
that ye be not slothful, right, the lazy. Don't be those lazy ones. But followers of them uh, who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You know what? There's plenty of examples. The them there are the examples around you, right? We all, we all have those stories to tell. I can sure think of them as I was a youngster here at Gospel. The Sunday school teachers or, or leaders in our church, men and women I admired, there's still a couple of what I call church moms. I had a handful of church moms. And I tell them, you're one of my church moms. Because when I was a kid, I watched you. And I saw the diligence that you had and your willingness to serve. And I saw you put your hand to the task, whatever that was. Those are always important reminders that there's somebody watching us. You never know who it is, but somebody's always watching and when they see you serving, when they see you teaching, when they see you in volunteering and engaging, you're inspiring somebody else. That's exactly what he's talking about here. Don't be lazy. Follow those. Follow them who through their own faith and their own patience inherit the promises. They've, they know the joy of serving the Lord. And let them be that type of example to you, he says. And it's a reminder to us that there are always those who are looking and watching. So the loving and the laboring, it's not the love and the labor, it's not nouns, it's verbs, because you're doing something. You're extending a hand, you're encouraging someone, you're finding a way to do what Hebrews 10 says, right? Exhort one another unto good works. And in verse 13 through 20, talks about, it's going to come down to the conclusion of hope. But before he does that, he builds a case, starting with verse 13, on Abraham. And of course, this is Abraham of the Old Testament, not the 16th president. The Abraham of the Old Testament, go back to Genesis chapter 12, is where it starts with him. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. Which means he, he swore on his own name, Remember the promise to Abraham? Abraham, I will give you a land. I will give you an inheritance. Your descendants shall outnumber the stars in the sand. And I swear that by my very name is in essence what the author is reminding his readers there. That's what God did. Go back and you can go back in Genesis and read that. Saying, this is again a, a paraphrase of what God said in Genesis to Abraham. Surely blessing I will bless thee and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so, after he, Abraham, had, here's these two words again, patiently endured. What did we see earlier? Diligence, fortitude, those kind of ideas. And so, after Abraham had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Abraham had a story too. He had a story of some great victories and some stories of some sad defeats. But he had a story. And in that story, he endured patiently. And at the end, he saw the promise. He saw the birth of his son, Isaac. And indeed, it would be through Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed because from Isaac came Jacob, and from Jacob came the tribes of Israel through the line of Judah. It would be the coming of the Messiah. Verse 16, for men verily swear by the greater... And an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. What he's saying there is that we always make an oath. When you see the word swear there, think an oath. We always make an oath by some authority greater than us. Well, in the, it's a simple example. In the courtroom, when you put your hand on the Bible and, you sw and you're sworn in, same idea. You're swearing by an authority greater than you. That what you're about to say is the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. At least that's what they do on Perry Mason. For men will, will set an oath by something greater than themselves, but God has nothing greater than his name to make an oath by. Verse 17, wherein God, willing, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. God validated his promise in this oath to Abraham. His promise to Abraham was that he would bless him. And he would fulfill this. And he did it in a way in which put no greater authority than that of his name. A big word in, in verse 17 that might catch your attention is the word immutability. Not one of those words you use every day of the week for sure. 
And it is a good word to use in theology discussions. We talk about what are the characteristics of God. One of them is immutability. And the word simply means God does not change. The same, you know, we know the New Testament phrase for this. The same yesterday, today, and forever. That's immutability. God does not change. The character, the holiness, the righteousness, the love, and the justice of God are never changing. Compare that to humans. We are ever changing. We're always changing. What's good today might be bad tomorrow. We've seen that in our culture, certainly. Even sometimes we talk ourselves. Well, you know, last week I know I thought it was bad, but the more I think about it, I think I like it, you know. We do that stuff all the time because we're so, you know, unstable sometimes. God is immutable. The word is used again in verse 18. That by two, what are those two? We'll give them a second. That by two immutable things or two immutable proofs in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, our strong assurance, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Let's back up for a second. The writer here says that by two immutable proofs, God has demonstrated he cannot lie. What are those two proofs? They're not after that verse, they're before that verse. It would, in our modern-day English, it would really read a little easier to say that by these two immutable proofs, because they've already been mentioned in verse 17. What are they? The proof of God's promise. Look at verse 17. It's right there in the middle. The proof of God's promise, and at the end, the proof of God's oath. By those two things, God made a promise, and then on top of that, God says, I, I swear, Abraham, by, my, by the authority of my own name, I will keep this promise. There's the promise, there's the oath. By these two things and the immutability of God, God cannot lie. And by that, we might see that there's a strong consolation, strong encouragement, a strong reminder for all those who have fled for refuge, haven't we to, to Christ fled for refuge? It's a, great, it's a great way to image in our mind what it is to run to the cross. We use that term a lot. We sing it in songs a lot. I've run to the refuge of Christ to do what? To lay hold upon the hope that is set before us that's only available to him. And he goes on to explain hope a little more. Verse 19. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Right? Some of you know the song. We have an anchor. An anchor of the soul, right? Both sure and steadfast. As the song says, steadfast and sure as the ages roll. And which enters into that, which entereth into that within the veil. What's the, what's the reference there? It's an Old Testament reference to the tabernacle. And the, and the later temple. Because where was the veil? It separated the holy of holies from the holy place. And to go behind the veil meant that you were walking on holy ground, truly holy ground in the presence of God, as only the high priest could do. Who is the, uh, uh, which hope we have? An anchor of the soul, sure and steadfast. And this hope even allows us to go into the very presence of God. Remember verse 16 of chapter 4, the very last verse of that chapter, that we go, into the, we go into the presence of God, we may boldly enter into the throne room of God to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. That's the very same imagery. We're walking to God's presence. We can go within the veil, behind the veil. Whether the forerunner is for us entered, who's the one who's gone before us? That's what a forerunner is. The one who's gone before us is Jesus, verse 20 who has been made a high priest forever, and here we are again, after the order of Melchizedek. So the structure of the end of chapter 5 through chapter 6 is important. Christ, our great high priest, chapter 5. The last part of chapter 5, the writer says, hold that thought for a minute, we need to think about this. You should be old enough and mature enough now in the faith to understand all this. And i got lots of things you have to talk about. But let's talk about why you need to not be lazy and why you need to be maturing in your faith. And that's all he's, he's spent all this time doing that. He reminds us of our great hope in Christ. 
He reminds us of the need for diligence and patience as illustrated by Abraham. He reminds us of those things so that we're ready. What he's trying to do is get us ready to hear what he's going to teach us next, which is chapter 7. Chapter 6 ends with Melchizedek. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. What's the first name mentioned there? Melchizedek. We're going to get right back on track talking about Melchizedek. We were introduced to him briefly in chapter 5. We saw a little conclusion of him in chapter 5, and then we come back to him at the end of chapter 6 and start of chapter 7. We'll spend chapter 7 spending more time talking about Melchizedek and why Christ is a greater one who is the uh, Melchizedek is, again, an individual. We'll talk about him later. Uh, again, we've already talked about him some, who is the priest and the king and how Christ fulfills that, that calling. Now, Christ is greater, right? That's the end of our Bible lesson. I said every, every week we're looking at Jesus is better um, when we compare him to the Jesus of all the cults that are out there, Okay. Last week, I introduced you to a group you probably had not heard of um, much, uh, the Christadelphians. Right? Probably a new name to you, but that group's out there, and, and they've got their Jesus, too. I introduced you to a group tonight you probably have not heard of either. Maybe you have. The Rastafarians. Is this a familiar name to many of you? Probably not. The Rastafarians. I know exactly why Adrian did that. Uh, and some of you didn't see it, but he knows. The Jesus of the Rastafarians. Let's talk about this group to begin with. It's an interesting group, and it begins, its story begins really in Jamaica. And Adrian's been there, so he, that's exactly why he brought that. I saw him, I saw him um, say something. Uh, the Rastafarian cult or group begins in Jamaica. Let's have a little bit of history of Jamaica. You up on your Jamaican history? In the, late, in the 1790s, a freed slave from the United States named, uh, has his name here, George Lyle, was a Baptist, okay, a Baptist freed slave from North America. He becomes an international missionary when he leaves America and goes to Jamaica and there starts a Baptist church and begins teaching the gospel and preaching the gospel. The name of his church, by the way, was the Ethiopian Baptist Church. His ministry there was one of the really true first exposures of the gospel to the island of Jamaica. And for, for the next 60 or so years, not he, he eventually would pass away, but the ministry that, that carried on began to teach Christian and biblical doctrines. What happened in the culture there, though, was intensified after the American Civil War. After the American Civil War, many of the now freed slaves went also to Jamaica. And a bit of a community began in Jamaica of those who had been Americans, uh, American slaves who had been exposed to some degree to the gospel here, certainly, the Christianity. And they brought all of that to Jamaica, where there had already been this work of George Lyle from some 50 or 60 years earlier. As a result of that, over the next 70 years, the teaching of the Bible became intermixed with all of the pagan teachings of the Jamaicans, which were basically animist. They believed there were spirits in all kinds of things. You know, spirit in the tree, spirit in the rock, spirit in the animal. That's animism. And over time, what, be, what resulted was a mix of Christian teachings and words that sound Christian, like Jesus and Bible and God and salvation, with a whole blend of other types of teaching that were extremely unbiblical. This particular type of teaching really didn't have a name. Some of the people there would have called themselves Christian, but they really weren't biblical Christians for sure. And they developed a whole doctrine and teaching and cultural and social one thing unique about the Rastafarian movement is they don't really have a headquarters. They don't have a structure of priests and, and prophets and preachers. It's just kind of a, social, a blend of social, cultural, and religious thought. So when you research them, you're likely to find all sorts of things that one group teaches that maybe others don't. So let me try to give you a little bit of an overview. And without going through lots of great detail, I'll try to in incorporate a few things here just in a few minutes. 
there are variations within the, Rost the Rastafarian movement. Now, again, this, now this movement is not just in Jamaica, by the way. It's very much here in America. It has been here since the 1930s. In the 1950s, it really kind of took off, and it had a revival of sorts in the 1970s, early 80s. And you know what? I see signs of a new revival of Rastafarianism in the culture today. And I'll show you in a moment example A of that. So there are variations within the movement. This is not like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons who have a very structured system of organization. They're not. But here's some of the things they will teach about Jesus. They will believe Jesus was a third incarnation of God, and they would put the first two as being Moses or Elijah and Jesus. They even would go so far to say that Jesus was a black African, and the term Rasta there means king. You see it in the name Rastafarians. I'll get to the other part of the name in a moment. They believe Jesus was a black African. And they believe that Jesus' second coming is still future. In other words, the incarnation of Jesus at the manger in Bethlehem did not, was not the true Jesus. It was just somebody named Jesus. But it wasn't the true appearance of God. So they still push even that into the future. Right? Now, what's really interesting about this group is, in their teachings, is a guy named Marcus Garvey. You'd have to go do some research on him. And I could spend a long time with all this, but we're not going to do that, I promise you. A guy named Marcus Garvey... In the, in the area of New York, um, began to teach as a, he was a, a black preacher of sorts. He began to teach in this community called Harlem in New York in the 1930s that there was, a, there was an uprise coming of the black race, the black culture. And, and he latched onto his Christian teachings, some of the teachings of the Rastafarians, as we would know them today. And he began to, to, to preach that he was a prophet of a coming king. And that coming king would come out of Africa. More particularly, that coming king would come out of Ethiopia. And sure enough, in 1930, a new king was, um, was set in place in Ethiopia. A king that some of you may remember the name from the late 60s and early 70s, named Haile Selassie. Anybody remember that name by chance? He was the king of Ethiopia. And they saw Haile Selassie as the true representation of the black race rising in the status of a king who could now lead the black people to greatness. I always found it interesting, they claimed he was the second coming of Christ. You know what Haile Selassie said about all of this? Pretty much you guys are crazy. <laughs> he had nothing, he didn't want anything to do with them. He heard, they tried to contact him. We've made you our Messiah. He, he knew better than that, I suppose. I don't know, at least he wasn't that crazy. And they, they believed he would usher in this new great age of, of, of reign and, and power. That all worked, was working pretty good, at least in some people's mind, up until 1975 when Haile Selassie died. And obviously nothing happened to any of those thoughts from Marcus Garvey or others. So their Jesus is a very weak Jesus at best, certainly an unbiblical Jesus. Now here is my example A of why there's, you, we can look for a Rastafarian revival. By the way, Rastafari is the name of Haile Selassie by title in Ethiopia. That's where the name comes from. Because they really attached, they attached their wagons to Haile Selassie, the king, who they called Rastafara. That's where the name is developed from. Here's the example A of why you will see a revival. I expect you'll see a revival of the Rastafarian movement in the United States because of this. This movie that came out this past week was the number one movie in the United States. It's about Bob Marley. Now, some of you are here old enough to, to remember that name. If you're not, go look him up. Bob Marley was the voice and the face of Rastafarianism and everything that was with it because he's out of Jamaica. 
And they have some crazy teachings. I mean, they, they believe that your religious experience is tied to what they call ganja, which is marijuana. That by, by inhaling marijuana, you're having a spiritual experience. And there's lots, of, again, the, the teachings of this group is really off the wall, and they're so varied and different. But you can't tell me that a movie that in one week grossed some 40-plus million dollars isn't going to have an impact on the culture. Green, yellow, and red are the colors of Rastafarianism. They grow dreadlocks. Why? Because they want to imitate the, the title that Haile Selassie was given, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Sound familiar? They want to imitate the mane of a lion. So they grow the dreadlocks and they wrap them up often in these big uh, woolen caps that are always green, yellow, and red. I just am going to be a little more sensitive to the Rastafarians moving forward because I'm just curious to see how much of a cultural impact that movement through that movie is going to have. Because I can tell you, there's no Christian movie that's made 40 plus million dollars in a week in, the, in, the, in, the, in anywhere in the recent history of our culture. Uh, you might have to go back to um, uh, The Passion of the Christ, I suppose, back in the early 2000s to even find something that would even be close. So uh, we'll see. But the Jesus of the Rastafarians is not the Jesus of the Scripture, that's for sure. So another one to look at. Well, the next time, in two weeks, again, next week we'll enjoy Pastor Paul's uh, celebration, and in two weeks we'll come to chapter 7. So go read a little bit about uh, Melchizedek, and we'll see what that brings to us. Uh, remind you also, we're praying as a class and supporting the uh, Pell family, and uh, that box is out there if you'd like to give something to them. Uh, we support them every month and pray for them and their work in South Asia. So uh, let's pray as we dismiss, and uh, thank you for being here tonight. Father, thank you for our time and your word. We're reminded, indeed, Christ of the Bible. There is none that even can stand in his shadow and rightfully claim to be a king. Uh, he is truly the great king and the great priest. I pray that we all know him as our own personal savior because he has brought us to that place of salvation through faith and grace. I pray that you'll bless our continued study in Hebrews as we move forward in a couple of weeks to work the second half of the book. I pray that you'll bless the week ahead and the evening as we work our way home and may this be a week in which we uh, will grow and mature in our faith. Uh, that we will find ourselves continuing to strive after serving you and to learn your word and to apply it to our hearts and to our lives. And may you be honored in all we do for your glory as we dismiss in Christ's name. Amen.